That's my wife. Wife has. Really? She's a long list of things that she can't stand it when I do them. Yeah, that's that's not a condition though. Ever lengthy list of things she hates about me. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by why people are still allowed to smoke outdoors in restaurants in Europe. Do you guys hmm. travel to yeah, Europe yeah. and eat in restaurants? I, so to our European colleagues, how is this still something that happens? You will never see this. in the. It's not allowed. You can't smoke in outdoor seating in the U.S. And I have become... So unaccustomed to the idea of people smoking while I'm eating that it really drives me nuts. Yeah, spit, spitting too. I don't ever see signs that say no spitting. Yeah, they should have those. They really it's disgusting. Really should. Anyway, I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I am here with Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Hello. And Jen Ryder from the Department of Epidemiology. Hi. We're all from the BU School of Public Health, and we are, as always, in the Godly Studio, which I don't think I've said in a while, but I think it's important to acknowledge, to set the scene for the listener, because I know that they all know the historic Godly Studio very well. Yes. Hello, Fiona. Don't don't know what that... Fiona Godly? Fiona Godly. It's the editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal. Obviously, I knew that. Yeah. Sure. Everybody uh, knows that. All right. Well. She's a, one of our biggest fans, I suspect. Oh, I, I have to believe. I mean, how could... How could all right. So let's uh, let's get into our, 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 our program today. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study, which I will just say ahead of time, I really liked this one. Um, I think we all really like this one. On the social determinants of firearm homicides in the United States. Then in the second part of our podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about an article on whether something called Mendelian randomization, if it's not something that you're aware of, or instrumental variables, if you are familiar with that term, is going to save epidemiology, or at least observational epidemiology. And then uh, in our Amazing and Amusing, we will get into things that make us laugh out loud, or Jen will tell us about the latest nonstick surface for our toilets, I assume. You're welcome. Yeah. Appreciate it. So in segment one, we're going to talk about an article, as I said, that looked at the social determinants of firearm homicides in the U.S., it's published in PLOS Medicine, so the same journal that we were looking at two weeks ago, the last time we were here in the studio, two weeks ago. Do you remember that? Way back in the beginning of January. Way back in the beginning of January. And it was entitled Social Determinants of Health in Relation to Firearm-Related Homicides in the United States, a Nationwide Multi-Level Cross-Sectional Study by first author Daniel Kim. And then I will also point out he is the first author. He the is author. the last author. He is all the authors because this was a single authored study, something I've never so rare. done. I've mm-hmm. never, I mean, I've published, I think, one, maybe one commentary. I wrote a paper as a single author once, and it was the funniest thing that I got these, these did you, comments Did you back. argue with your co-authors a lot on it? I No, they were, they were very agreeable <laughs> for once. They, I had no trouble seeing my point of view. Um, yes. I got comments back from the reviewers who kept saying that you should use the term we throughout yeah, the paper. So and I was like, no, there, there was no we here. <laughs> the royal we. Me. The royal I. we. <laughs> anyway, so. First I did this, then I did that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Daniel Kim, sole author uh, from, Daniel. The, from the Department of Health Sciences right here in sunny Boston, Massachusetts, over at Northeastern University, right across the the way. I didn't, as with last time, okay, I'll just drop the charade here. It's 
15 minutes after we taped the last episode. And so I didn't have time to, to get the headlines on this one. So I don't know uh, whether or not this one got a lot of press, but um, Jen, can you, can you walk us through this one? And can you in particular, can you tell everyone why I thought it was such a great study? Well, I'll, I'll do my best. Oh, um, but no? I also, I thought it was a great right. study. I really good, enjoyed good, this good. paper. So did I. So a little bit of context that the the single author provides for us. Between 2001 and 2013, there were more gun deaths in the U.S. than the combined total of deaths from war, AIDS, illegal drug overdoses, and terrorism. Mm. Gun-related deaths rose consecutively in 2015, 16, and 17. So the author was interested in looking at how social determinants of health impact firearm-related incidents and numbers of deaths. And just as a little background, social determinants defined by the WHO are the upstream social and economic conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age that shape individual and group differences in in health status. So Dr. Kim argues that a number of studies have looked at the effects of policy on firearm-related deaths, but far fewer have have looked at the role of, of social determinants. So they looked at a number of different levels. So they end up using hierarchical models, which we'll talk about. So at the county level, they were interested in social capital, which is basically an individual's ties with society, both formal and informal. They looked at income inequality, so the gap between rich and poor, and then intergenerational social mobility. So in other words, the ability for children to obtain a higher uh, socioeconomic status than, than their parents. At what they call the commuting zone level, they looked at residential, racial, and economic segregation. At the state and local level, they looked at the spending on non-medical social outputs, things like uh, social welfare and education and protection. And then at the census tract level, they looked at the percentage of people unemployed, the percent on cash assistance, percent in poverty, and the percent of males who were living alone. So they were interested just in the year between January 1st and December 31st, 2015, They geocoded the latitude and longitude of firearm-related deaths using data that had already been collected from the Gun Violence Archive, which is a nonprofit that tracks shootings and gun deaths based on media reports. But there is a pretty extensive verification process involved in this. And actually, in the paper, they note that their total numbers actually very closely correspond to what the CDC reported. They then linked these firearm-related incidents and deaths to the census tract geographies from 2010. So at that time, maybe still today, I don't know how much this changes, but there were 74,134 census tracts in the contiguous 48 U.S. states. 70,579 of those ended up being used in their in their final sample. So that represents over 300 million individuals or 98% of the U.S. population. Just kind of part of the backstory, the Guardian newspaper was actually responsible for doing that initial linkage to hmm. the census tracts yeah. in the U.S., but then made that data publicly available. So, so, so there are more, way more census tracts than there are counties, correct? That, that is, it's a subdivision of counties? Census tracts are contained within counties, yes. 
The homicide rate was estimated by dividing the number of reported incidents in the census tract in 2015 by the population in that census tract in 2015. And then they did that separately for non-mass shootings, which means that one or two deaths resulted, and mass shootings, which are defined by three or more deaths. For the exposures, I'm not going to go through how they measured all of these things, but just a couple of examples, things that I hadn't been exposed to before. So, for instance, Gini, is it Gini or Gini? The Gini coefficients. Gini coefficients were used to measure county-level income inequality. So zero would correspond to perfect equality, and a one would mean perfect inequality. They used Therrell's Entropy Index to measure residential segregation according to both race, ethnicity, and income. So when H is 1, there's zero racial heterogeneity within the census tract. And when H is 0, it means that all census tracts within a given commuting zone have the same racial composition. For their analyses, they used a variety of lag periods depending on the specific exposure. So those ranged from 3 to 17 years. And then they had four different models that I'll that I'll describe, but all of those models controlled for median household income and the percent of black individuals. The census tract models also included things like percent high school education, percentage male, percent unemployed, percent receiving cash assistance, percent in poverty, percent age 20 to 34 years, percent of males living alone, and then the total population that was centered in the year 2012. The county level models also included population density and property crime rates. The commuting zone models included a dichotomous variable for whether or not it was an urban area. And then the state models included both state and local spending per capita and some information on the state gun control policy. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned, they used hierarchical multivariate adjusted negative binomial models for two different outcomes, homicide rates and then the number of homicide incidents. They had four models that they used that are basically nested models. So the initial model included income inequality, social spending, and racial segregation. The second model included all of those variables plus income segregation. The third one included all of those variables plus social capital. And then in the fourth and final model, they also added social mobility. And they did this so that they could evaluate potential mediation using the Barron and Kenny approach. So just very briefly, the idea is that if you put a variable that's in the causal pathway between your exposure and your outcome in the model, you would expect the effect estimate for that exposure to go down and the p-value to go up. So that's what they were looking at in these in these nested models. And they actually have some information that they provide suggesting that that was actually a, a fine approach to use for, for looking at mediation. So on to the results. During 2015, they identified a total of 13,060 firearm-related deaths, and this was very close to what the CDC reported of 12,979. There were 11,244 non-mass shooting incidents that occurred in 8,763 census tracts, and then an additional 141 mass shooting incidents that occurred in 138 census tracts. 
there was a higher concentration of firearm incidents in urban areas. The award going to Cook County, Illinois, mm-hmm. which uh, includes Chicago, which had 449 that the, year. Though of note, I saw yesterday in the news, the homicide rate in Chicago has gone down the past two years. Great news. Going in the right direction? Yes. So then their first outcome was homicide rates. And in general, the results that they saw for homicide rates were very similar to the results for the number of incidents. So I'm not really going to, I'm not going to go through both of those. I'll just, I'll just provide the, the results on rates. So they found that one standard deviation increase in the county Gini coefficient was associated with an 8% increase in the census track homicide rate. So more income equality, less... Likelihood of Uh, reduced homicide. More income, no. So more income inequality, more more homicide. homicide. Yeah, yeah. I said the opposite. Yeah, exactly. A one standard deviation increase in welfare or education spending was associated with a fourteen percent or twenty two percent reduction in homicide rates, respectively. Racial segregation and income segregation had somewhere between 2 and 5% increases in homicide rates. A one standard deviation increase in institutional social capital was associated with a 19% decrease in the homicide rate. So this, is, this was one of those variables that was a, a nested model. And they found that adding social capital didn't seem to uh, change the effect estimate for the Gini coefficient of income inequality. So mm-hmm. no evidence of effect modif- of, uh, sorry, mediation there. However, it did appear that the effect of welfare spending on homicide rates went through the effect of social capital. Mm. So there was some evidence of, of mediation of that relationship. And we should probably explain a little bit further what the social the institutional versus community social capital means, because I, I found those those two terms to be can you new do to that? Me. Can you do that? I- <laughs> uh, uh, I'm going to probably it is slightly wrong, but the community social capital was is a, is a reflection of the existence of social groups like churches or non non religious based societies like the Lions Club, I guess, or the YMCA, things that people join that, would, the, that you would connect with your community, ways yeah. of binding community through organizations, yeah. and whereas institutional social capital was a reflection of people's general trust in Formal institutions, like do you trust the police? Do you trust the courts? To be fair, okay, great. So it's more of an attitude rather than joining uh, joining a, a rate. Okay, perfect. And then finally, an increase in intergenerational social mobility was associated with 25% lower homicide rates. And there was also some evidence of mediation there. So compared to the model without social mobility, the Gini coefficient was attenuated quite a bit. So again, showing that that relationship between income inequality and homicide rates appears to go through social mobility to some extent. They tried to look at mass homicide incidents separately, but the confidence intervals were were quite wide, so it's it's a bit hard to interpret those results. But they did find a number of variables at the census tract level that were also associated with higher homicide rates, as well as non-mass shooting homicide incidents. So a one standard deviation increase in the percentage of residents living in poverty was associated with about a 26% increase in the rate of homicides, a one standard deviation increase in the percent of males living alone was associated with a 12% increase in, in homicide rates. I think those are the, the big ones. I, I, I do too. And I think that, you know, before I turn this over to you, Chris, I want to say that I, as I 
mentioned at the beginning, I really like this study, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one is I think it's a really clever use of data, which is something that always you know impresses me when people are able to bring together various different data sources to bear on a single problem that brings together a lot of information in in a way that provides a a richness. And and I I would say that's probably the second. There is a depth to this paper that goes so far beyond anything that I have ever done. There's a lot of effort and care that went into this. And all with publicly available data. Yeah. I mm-hmm. agree. I mm-hmm. think it's it's really remarkable mm-hmm. what they did. And so it's it it, it it really is impressive. Now I will to to and therefore I'm gonna when I come back I'm gonna focus my comments largely on the things that I I think are worth discussing because I I think it largely to me it largely holds up, but I I do think that it is hard for me to comment. So this is our first social epi paper, and it is hard for me to comment on the magnitude of the effects, whether or not I think these are, you know, sort of the, whether they pass the laugh test kind of thing because it's not my field. Mm-hmm. So I will just just throw that out there before I, I, you know, sort of offer up my, my critique. So Chris, what's your, what's your, what was your take on this one? Well, I agree with the two of you that I thought that this was really a, a very thoughtfully and rigorously constructed analysis. I thought it, it rang true in that, you know, it's, it's bottom line conclusions are, are maybe not so surprising that, that, you know, fundamentally it seems that, that homicide rates are, are related in many ways to poverty. But he he goes a little bit beyond that because this sort of int- this idea of the of the of the social capital I thought the uh, excuse me the institutional social capital I thought was was interesting because it was all about to me it felt like that was a proxy for desperation like when you sort of feel that there there you know there is no justice that you know the police are against you the courts are against you you know it's all the society is rigged against you that that was such a a powerful associate with with homicide and I, I felt that that message rang true and w- and was also deeply cynical it, it it you know the obvious limitation is we don't know what cause and effect is because because ultimately we would like to to say what are you what are we going to do about this where do you where do you make the investments and it is very difficult to sort of tease out cause and effect here and i think he he doesn't try and doesn't claim to try but to me it felt like you know this this was a very useful sort of you know, reference point to have in society to say, well, this is where we should start to look because pr- presumably some of these things must be actionable. So that that's what sort of s- struck me the most. But I, I have to say, I was I was particularly fascinated just by looking at the heat maps where he describes the regional variations in in violence by county across the United okay, States. Okay, so are you are you like me though? When the, when you see a heat map of the United States, the first thing you do is immediately look for. Boston and trying to figure out how oh, we're doing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, okay. and and Boston is 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 literally in the green as yeah. being a low violence area as is New York City. And so the you know the first thing that comes clear is is that that violence is not necessarily an urban rural phenomenon. It yeah. is it, it's that really is surprising. too simplistic. So like Boston is a very very low crime area. Uh, so is New York City, so is most of Chicago. And then the areas where most of Chicago but most of Chicago but not but not there's all. a there's a there's a piece that is that is not. Right. But when you look to see like where is the sort of the concentration of in in this map red and yellow and orange were were the places where the homicide rates were higher and red was highest of all and so much of that is 
concentrated in in the south, basically starting at the Mason-Dixon line and going down to the Gulf, then stopping at the top of the Florida, you know, at the at the uh, the peninsula of Florida, and then largely excluding much of Texas. So there's a part of eastern Texas which seems to have a lot of relatively higher rate of homicide, but it's it's largely that sort of congregation of southern states, including South Carolina and West Virginia, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and northern Florida that seem to be where most of the uh, the, the highest rates of homicide are concentrated in the United and surpri- States. And, and we, we commented this offline, but it, it is surprising to me the, the the blue is the is the essentially zero. How much of the middle of the country of the United States is is blue? Areas that I would I, I this is just a guess, but I, I suspect there is a reasonable gun uh, owning population. But then it is it is it is almost entirely blue that sort of middle section of the country, middle going north south, except for parts of Texas, with the exception of these little pockets of red, which I, yes. I have to believe are going to be urban areas. So there may be some a little bit more of the urban rural divide going on than we think, but it's, it, it is fascinating that there is so much. And by the way, I should say these are, these are gun homicide rates. So these are not, it's not the fact that these are not adjusted for population size, though right. it could be that population density is but, a big factor. But you in, can compare to the heat map on the next page, yep. which is just the raw numbers of incident. And it is kind of interesting. And they even point to a couple of examples like the Miami area, right. which has a relatively high number of gun related incidents. But you know, when you adjust for the population size. Same thing it, with basically all of California. And same with California. Yep, exactly. But the rates are, are low. Yep. Minus right. a few pockets. No, but I, yeah. I also was struck by the, the sort of the sea of blue, meaning essentially zero gun homicides with little islands of red yeah. and and very few, not none, but very few uh, red, red being oranges, the worst. red being the worst, but very few oranges and yellows, which being the, the, the not, not quite red, but still higher than green and blue. Yeah. So it, it, it was like either or and, and with no sort of transition. And so it felt to me like there are these little islands of, of, of violence within a sea of essentially no violence. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. is it just because, I mean, we don't see those in the raw number. Yeah. So I'm wondering, is, is it just because the population is so low in those areas that even, you know, a, one incident could drive the rate into the red zone? I, I suppose I it, think could it, be. Absolutely could be. it could but be. I think but there, there's so much. I mean, the, I think the maps are fascinating and that there's so much more that can be done with these mm-hmm. maps to tell mm-hmm. it, you know, to tell and us I, a little bit more what those what those red places are like. And I suspect will be. Yeah. OK, so let me let me bring up a couple of issues. Something that you hit on, Chris, which I think is really important here is the issue of whether we're talking about causation or we're, we're, or not or whether we're talking about description. And I, I struggled with I mean, so I, I will start off by saying I start I struggled in the beginning to determine in my own head whether or not this was ecologic or cross-sectional or longitudinal. Um, it took me a while to figure out it's not ecologic. The, some of the predictor variables are ecologic in nature. That's why it's a multi-level model. But we have individual level information on the homicides and we have individual, you know, we, we have population numbers such that you can essentially um, think of these as people. Now, one thing that we don't have here is 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 a lot of confounder control ability because you don't have the individual level confounder information. You just have the societal level, uh, the, the 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 community level predictors and things like that. So it does strike me that that this is probably not causation. There's there are a lot of talk about model fit in this paper, which again says to me we're not talking about causation. We're talking about prediction, which 
you know, perfectly reasonable things to do and, and important. It just, I, you know, it strikes me as, Chris, when you say that one of the, one of the, community level predictors was trust in institutions. You know, that's not something you could just say, oh, well, okay, we think that is causal. Therefore, people should just trust the institutions and everything's going to, you know, homicides will drop, right? You have to, when we talk about causation, we have to be very clear in what we're, what we're talking about. And this is the model, you know, I really like the intervention model where we specify, you know, how are we going to get from one to the other? It's not enough to say that more, social cohesion is a good thing. We've got to be clear in how are we going to get people to have more social cohesion because, A, if we don't, then really what are we doing? We have no practical interventions. And B, we have no way to to say what we would expect to observe in terms of effects until we can say how we're going to do it because different ways of trying to get people to have more social cohesion are going to have different effects on homicide rates. Mm -hmm. I I disagree a little bit on the prediction point, though, just because there was so much care put into the lag times. And those were based on what we know about causal associations, not on trying yeah. to develop the most the most predictive model. Yeah. And this is why I'm a little unclear on what, what exactly the goal, was. Yeah. the goal was. You know, I would like to see, I would like to know causally how much these things are related, but I don't know how easy that would be to do. I think that'd be really difficult to do. And I don't know, again, what it would mean. I mean, you know, you can't, you know, more social spending meant less homicides. Well, is that potentially confounded? More so you're having, you know, uh, uh, d- d- I mean, I guess what I mean is, right. does that mean, so if we continue to spend more, will we get an even greater reduction? Right, right. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a perfect example of this in, in, their, in their table one, where they describe essentially a 10% increase in homicide rates for every one standard deviation increase yeah. in the proportion of the population who are uh, receiving cash assistance, i.e. welfare. Yeah. And so you'd say, okay, spending on welfare increases homicide rates but that's not true right that's probably that's probably exactly the opposite that the, you know this you know it, it again is all driven by poverty rather than than by intervention so so it it, it it to me it felt like this was this was again like this was a starting place it was a, a place on which to base hypotheses for how one would make investments in society that could alleviate gun homicides and and some of the ones where I would say I believe that there is likely to be mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. direct effect would be education spending and and probably welfare spending would be, even though it seems to be going the opposite direction, I suspect that that is a consequence rather than a cause. And then the other ones, I, I guess I was not so sure. Which, um, which ones? Well, everything else on the list. Like, where where would one start, right? I mean, you could say, like, the Gini coefficient is a very powerful, so that the more income inequality there is in the society, the more likely there is, you know, the more likely it is that there's going to be uh, higher homicide rates. So what does that mean? What what would one do about that. Bernie Sanders has an answer, right? Um, and he would say we need to level the playing field and make it make everyone more equal. Yep. Is but is that is he correct? You well, know, that's I, the question. I don't know the answer to that, but but here's where I think he causal, might be. I just don't know. Causal epidemiology is is, is really interesting because I, there may in fact be a, a direct causal effect of the Gini coefficient mediated through. I said direct, uh, mediated through various you know pathways like social cohesion. You know, the the, the more the less uh, income inequality is, the more people tend to trust each other and trust society, trust institutions, whatever it is, that that just makes societies more cohesive. I can believe that. That's different from whether we could a measure exactly what the effect size is, and b whether or not we could then create 
such a thing, right. and whether creating such a thing would be the same as having such a thing. When it comes about naturally, the effect may be very different from socially engineering a, a more equal society and such that the benefits may be different. And I, you know, I, we don't, we don't know how to tease that out right now or uh, no, I don't know how to tease that out. It's what I should say from mm-hmm. this information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Any other, any other thoughts before we, we move well, on? Well, I, I sort of do over the Christmas break. I, uh, I finally got around to reading JD Vance's uh, hillbilly elegy. Mm-hmm. And, and it, of course th- this, you're reading this paper and, and you're sort of like checking off the list of all the things that he, he describes as being like, you know, descriptions of, of how his, the society that he grew up in, was in crisis. And mm-hmm. I actually sort of jotted them down here at one point. Anyway, so J.D. Vance, you know, describes growing up in Middletown, Ohio. And by the way, Middletown, Ohio was in the newspaper today for totally unrelated reasons. But apparently Middletown, Ohio has a very generous homeless shelter policy. And the article is all about how this is being taken advantage of by surrounding communities as far away as Cleveland, um, which is mm, on the other side of the state, thing. where locals, rather than put people into the, like the local homeless shelter, would give them a one-way taxi ride to Middletown oh. to just unload them onto Middletown. Mm. And the people which are constantly showing up and being just dropped off by taxis and Ubers with nowhere to go and would just go to the Middletown shelters anyway. Mm-hmm. It was very depressing. Anyway, so Vance uh, is describing in his society one which has got this very high racial segregation, low social mobility, a high degree of income inequality, possibly low social capital, low institutional capital, meaning that nobody trusted the police, nobody trusted the courts, nobody trusted the government, and it was all very insular. Uh, low income and high rates of, of welfare reliance. And and that is, you know, basically that's his sociological analysis of what desperate poverty looks like in, in sort of of, uh, you know, a rural, peri-rural or small, small town setting uh, in America. And this is what they are describing to a T with a statistical model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Well, let's move on to our, our second segment. So in our second segment, we're talking about an article that came out in Nature back in December of last year. And the article was entitled The Causation Detector by David Adam. And Rather than going through the, the the full details of the article, essentially what I'll say is the article is largely based on the idea that uh, epidemiology, observational epidemiology, has struggled for quite a while in dealing with bias. There have been a lot of advances in in our ability to deal with that, and one of them is an idea that, that you know I don't actually know the the history of where it actually came from, but it's certainly been used in the economics literature for a much longer time than it has been used in epidemiology, and it's the idea of something called instrumental variables. And essentially what instrumental variables are, they are nature's randomization. They are variables which are strongly associated with your exposure, but they have no direct effect on the uh, outcome except through the exposure, and they have no common causes with both the, with the with the outcome and that variable themselves. And because there's no confounding, there are no common causes of that exposure and the outcome, and that exposure has no effect on the outcome except through that particular exposure, then you can you can actually recover the causal effect of the, the exposure you're really interested on the outcome by using the instrumental variable. And the this has been used to to 
great effect in, in the economics literature, hasn't so much in the epidemiologic literature, um, largely because these instrumental variables are hard to find. And you have to make a lot of, you have to assume that those, those three conditions are met. One of them can be tested, but the other two cannot. But the one that has gained flavor somewhat within epidemiology is the idea of Mendelian randomization. So the idea here is that your instrumental variable in this case is a gene. So say we want to know, in this case, the example that they provide, we want to know the effect of cholesterol on cancer, but we know that there's all kinds of confounding common causes of, of your cholesterol and whether or not you develop cancer that we feel like we cannot tease out in observational studies and we have no randomized trials. But we do know that there are genes which are causally related to how much cholesterol you have, but that don't have necessarily effects on cancer through any other mechanisms. And genes are you know, presumably randomly assigned to an extent so that, that we don't have common causes of, of your having this particular gene and developing cancer. So the theory goes, obviously, you could, you could come up with a story. Therefore, you can use genes to try and estimate effects of these, these exposures we might be interested in, in a way that if we get it right, if we meet these assumptions, is not subject to all the problems of confounding. And George Davy Smith at, at Bristol has is, is been one of the biggest proponents of these and is featured heavily in this particular article. The question is, then, you know, this is an article entitled The Causation Detector. Is Mendelian randomization the bright light that is going to save us as epidemiologists. Chris, I turn this one to you first because you seem to be the one who has the greatest skepticism around- Is that because I'm making googly eyes? No, I assumed you always made googly eyes. You are the one who who expresses the greatest skepticism around standard regression-based approaches to dealing with confounding. You famously have coined this the kayak roof rack problem, (laughs) I believe, that if, if you look at people who have roof racks that will support a kayak on the top of their car. They probably also have lower rates of heart disease, and lower cancer. rates of heart disease, higher socioeconomic status, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And those things are hard to tease out. And therefore, whenever we do a nutrition paper, you basically uh, give us the same response that you don't buy it. I give the same response too, but often for different reasons. Right, right. You know, is this, is this a potentially helpful approach that we should be thinking about or does this raise some of the same concerns? Sure. So maybe I'll start by explaining or trying trying to explain to myself and therefore to the listeners a little bit more about what this Mendelian randomization thing is. Great idea. So let let's let's stipulate they were all born from a sperm and an egg, which came from a parent. We're going back to the very, back beginning. To the very beginning. All the way back. All the way to the beginning. Uh-huh. And so you know, you got mom, you got dad, and and, th- and when they love each other very much. <laughs> and when they love each other very much, um, you get Matt uh, and Chris and Jen. So we're we're all here because of that. So the the through the process of meiosis, the 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 the, the man is going to make sperm and the the, the mom is going to make eggs, which are going to have on it. We're going to have a 50-50 chance of having one copy of each of their original genes. And so that is the randomization is the 50-50. And so we don't know which which of those genes the baby's going to get. And so maybe the baby gets from mom a gene that codes for higher average levels of cholesterol. And so that is a purely random experiment because this happened on a 50-50 coin flick just by the way that chromosomes reassort. And so that's the randomization. And so now we're looking at the genetic 
you know, the presence of the genetic marker for high cholesterol, and then you use that as your predictor variable to see is that associated with higher rates of heart attacks and strokes, okay? Which would then take away all the gene, which would take away all the social biases around what do you eat and what do you do and do you exercise and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, it, at, at that very basic level, I'm like, wow, that's so cool. Of course, that, that, that has to be true. But then the biological part of me says, wait a minute, genetics are super tricky. So you got to be careful about that because genes code for all sorts of things. And so few of those things do we, in fact, do any of those things do we fully understand. So the assumption in the Mendelian randomization is that there's an independence between the, the, the predictor and the outcome. Right. Right. But that may not be true. There is is probably mostly the case that that genes have so pleiotropic effects and all sorts of things happen. And so I would be very cautious in assuming that the gene for high cholesterol is the same thing is as measuring cholesterol levels in a population. I think there could easily be some genetic biases and mechanisms that we just don't understand. But the the, the concept behind it, I think, is really appealing mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. terms of getting rid of all these sort of social biases that that make you know that lead to the kayak roof racks paradox. Yeah. So 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 Mendelian randomization is or, or, or sorry instrumental variables in general is something that that people often have a hard time getting their head around because you know this one sort of essentially what I'm saying is you have a gene that that increases your risk for having high cholesterol. Right. It doesn't mean you're going to have high cholesterol. It just increases the risk. Now, what I'm going to do is I want to know the effect of high cholesterol. What I'm going to do is I'm going to analyze you, Chris, by whether or not you have the gene, not by whether or not you have the cholesterol. And Correct. then I'm going to make a statement about whether or not cholesterol affects cancer. And that's where people sort of say, well, wait a minute. I, I know whether or not you have high cholesterol. Why am I analyzing you in a group to which you were not actually in? It follows the logic, though, of randomization, which is that in a randomized trial, we randomize people to take a drug or not take a drug. People will make their own decisions to a certain extent whether or not, you know, I mean, if it's blinded, it's harder to do, but they can essentially not take the drug at all. Or if it's unblinded, they may know what the drug is. You know, if it's an over-the-counter medication, they can go out and buy it. We say randomization is what matters here. So we randomize you, we analyze you in the group to which you were randomized, even though I know maybe you didn't take the drug. That is the intention to treat paradigm. And that is this is the same idea here, is that there is some source of randomization in nature that we are exploiting mm -hmm. that we can then use and we'll, you know, we'll sort of quote unquote sacrifice the fact that people don't end up in the groups to which we really want to know about. But we have actually, we also have methods that we can actually recover the true causal effect Assuming all the assumptions are met. Sure, sure. I I I, I, buy, I buy all of that, and and I want then I want to turn it over to Jen because I don't want to monopolize here. But but you know the the mechanism by which one achieves a change in cholesterol in an, in a randomized controlled trial apparently matters a great deal. Right. So just to sort of briefly recapitulate the history of cholesterol lowering interventions as a means of reducing cardiovascular death, you know, the first big sort of slam dunk success story was the statins. But the thing about the statins is that they not only reduced the risk of a second heart attack, but they did so so quickly. You know, within a six as little as six to eight weeks, you start to see a reduction in heart attack rates, which seems implausible. If the if it took decades to get build up these these rock light arteries, how does six weeks of, of lovastatin make a difference so quickly? So it was sort of implied that that was rather too good to be simply as a, a function of cholesterol per se, but maybe that the story is more complicated. And then we sort of leap 
ahead and we find out that there are all these other drugs that also reduce cholesterol like niacin or gemfibrozil or drugs that bind uh, cholesterol in your diet and sort of reduce the absorption of cholesterol. And while those also reduce your cholesterol to a measurable extent, none of them had an impact on reducing cardiovascular death. And in fact, the cholesterol binding drugs, the ones that reduce absorption of your body, seem to actually increase the rate of heart attacks. And so the mechanism by which one achieved a reduction in cholesterol seemed to be more important than the absolute level of the cholesterol. So this this is what makes me now nervous about extrapolating, you know, where the, the, the point of Mendelian randomization is to get closer to a randomized controlled trial. But my point is that there could be dozens and there are probably other dozens, are dozens of genes that affect cholesterol. So one, why would one assume that they're all equivalent in terms of their biological impact? Since we know that pharmacologically that is not true. Yeah, I don't think it, I, I, I don't think the idea of, of, of Mendelian randomization is it doesn't matter. It's it's if we believe there is an effect of your cholesterol level, not a drug to change your cholesterol level, but of whatever your level is, then we can recover that effect through these genetic approaches. And in theory, there could be multiple genes involved and we could exploit any one of those. I think the bigger problem though, which you raise, is that genes may do other things. And so having a gene that that puts me at increased risk for for low cholesterol, it also has to have no effect on cancer any other way. Right. And I don't I don't know genetics well enough to know whether or not that is a plausible assumption. Well well okay, let's 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 take the the, the pharmacologic paradigm and and apply that to the genetic paradigm. So cholesterol is the end product of a, of a very long synthetic pathway of biochemical reactions with dozens of side pathways coming off of it, all sorts of byproducts of this one process that eventually leads to cholesterol, which is then used to synthesize all sorts of other things. So cholesterol is then the, the molecule that, that is the feedback regulator that turns off that entire synthetic pathway. So you get to the end, you create cholesterol, and it says, stop making cholesterol. But in between the make or don't make cholesterol, dozens of things have occurred. And so, and so we look at cholesterol as being the, the mediator of a reduction in heart attacks. But how do we know that's true as opposed to any of the one of the, the dozens of things that occurred in that pathway? We actually don't know that. Now, if you took a statin drug, what you'd be doing is you'd be shutting off the first reaction in that synthetic pathway. So everything downstream is now suppressed. Now, the opposite of that is if you took a cholesterol binding drug that prevented you from absorbing it, you would reduce your cholesterol in your, in your bloodstream, but the cholesterol synthesis pathway would be upregulated, right? Because you're taking away the downstream inhibition. And so all of those synthetic pathways are now enhanced. So you're actually ramping up that biological process. And so when I see that drugs like Zedia actually seem to increase the rate of heart attacks because they're binding cholesterol, it makes me wonder, in fact, is cholesterol the, the, the mechanism by which this occur or is it one of those side pathways? And so but let me just finish, then I'll pass it off to you. But then I think, okay, we have, let's say there are two genes that are both associated with cholesterol, one of which reduces your ability to to absorb cholesterol in your diet, and one of which reduces the amount of cholesterol you synthesize. So I would think that those two could also, you know, in terms of their the total absolute level of cholesterol, would look very similar on a blood test, and would could be, you know, linked through genome-wide association studies to lower cholesterol, but would have totally different biological implications because one would lead to an acceleration of the endogenous cholesterol synthesis pathway, and one would lead to a repression of that. And I think that those two may not be synonymous at all. And so that's what makes me a little bit leery about taking this this genetic 
take the, you know, the presence or absence of one gene as a valid surrogate. I, I'm, I'm not sure that we understand the biology enough to make that assumption clear. Jen, you want to respond? Sure. So, uh, first of all, I think that, Matt, you're the going back and thinking about how this relates to the kind of randomized trial that we all understand much better is really helpful because it can also point us to where things can go wrong. So, you know, you said in a blinded study where randomization really shouldn't have any impact at all on the, the outcome through any pathway other than actually taking the drug, the same could be true when you think of Mendelian randomization, but what if our instrument is now really weak, right? What if there's a very weak association between that gene and your cholesterol level? It's now sort of similar to the situation of horrible noncompliance, right? You have a lot of people where that's not predictive of what's actually mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. And so the association that you get could be severely attenuated or could even be flipped in certain certain situations, right? Would you agree? I would agree in theory, in although theory. I would say I would say if we treated let's pretend we're in a world of point of point exposures. If we treated randomization as an instrument, we could just for the lack of compliance and still recover the causal effect. Okay. Okay. Maybe. But then we add to that the fact that these genes, you're right. I agree, Chris. It's it's probably unusual that each gene has some independent effect on the outcome and it doesn't have other roles also. And you know, we, we don't really know what many of these things are doing. And I think that's what, you know, the article starts out, I found myself a little defensive in reading it in the beginning because the tone is a bit like epidemiology is in crisis. Yeah, we get those. We get get a lot of those. All of these observational studies have shown, you know, that certain nutritional supplements are beneficial and then we do the trial and it shows no effect. But Thank goodness. Now we have Mendelian (laughs) randomization, and that's going to fix everything. Problem solved. Problem solved. Hallelujah. But fortunately, there's a shift because George Davy Smith comes in and talks about what a disaster this has been in terms of misuse and how it is a tool that when not fully understood, it's so easy to implement that you know, a lot of folks who who don't fully understand the assumptions or or really anything about causal methods have gone on to apply this and come up with with really problematic studies, which some of which have then been corrected by by the experts. So so I think the the, the article ends with a touch of caution yeah. about yeah, yeah. Um, when these methods should be used and and their potential for abuse. Yeah, I so Chris, I don't I don't totally buy your argument because I don't think it matters why what what mechanism by which we get to the exposure cuz cholesterol in this case is the exposure. It's not the outcome. It doesn't matter how we got to different levels of cholesterol. What matters is did we get to differences in cholesterol that are essentially have some component of randomization to them that we can exploit. And if you're right that there are different ways to get to the pathway that are, in fact, the real 
things, then our Mendelian randomization approach should show there is no effect of the cholesterol itself. It's these other things that lead to the cholesterol. And, and that actually seems to me a, a benefit. But I think, Jen, your point is that, that it's, it, it does matter, though, if they affect the outcome, in this case was cancer. If these same genes are affecting cancer, then you potentially end up with a problem. And you, your point about a weak instrument, if you have a, a weak instrument and you have bias, then you potentially magnify that bias quite a bit. I, I agree with you too. I mean, I think this isn't gonna save epidemiology. This is another tool in the toolkit and we should always be open to you know, different ways and different approaches and, and, and thinking about things in different ways to try and get at the causal effects because it is so darn hard to get at the causal effect in observational data. We should, we should be open to more tools in our toolkit and this is one of them. Not one isn't, you know, going to always give us the right answer and one isn't always going to give us the wrong answer. Fair enough. Yeah. Anyway, so let's move on to our, our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing segment where we want to highlight some of the things that make us enjoy our jobs even more. Chris, do you want to, you want to go first? Sure. Over the new year, several weeks ago, I went to Quebec City with my family mm-hmm. and they had this big outdoor musical festival and the youth were bopping up and down to the some youths. the youths were bopping up and down to some These two youths. Um, you know actually it was interesting there was there was a there was a hip hop artist who came on first and the youths of Quebec did actually not respond very much it, it was there was a lot of quizzical look in, in the crowd and, and not a lot of dancing there were a couple moments where where she got everybody going but mostly she the hip-hop was artist. um i don't know a, a hip-hop artist from toronto um, Hathia, Hathia Mighty, I think was her name. Anyway, it doesn't much matter. <laughs> and then we went down to the other stage, and there was there was a, a, a traditional Quebecois folk group singing about chickens and ducks and clapping, mm. and everyone was really into it. Yeah, was, it was this outside? It was all outside. It in was, the it was chilly. Yeah, yeah, it was chilly. Uh, then, but it was, it was there super may fun. be a selection bias going anyway, on here. It, it was clear that, that like people like, but the, the difference between the two music is one, you, you know, the sort of there was like a lot of rhythm to don't. Like, you know, the, the Cajun folk music is very like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. You know, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's sort of snappy and it's very repetitive and it's very easy to pick up the beep and you just kind of like start to move. And the um, the hip hop was sort of start and stop and start and stop and start and stop with a lot of heavy bass and sort of punctuated by big noises, but it wasn't regular, <laughs> right? And so it was hard to dance to one, it was very easy to dance to the other. And then later on, they had an electronica show and people, and where everything is in, the, is in the meter of one, 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 one. And people really liked dancing to a meter of one they just jump up and down and like like pogo sticks so that is a very effective dance rhythm anyway so people clearly like to dance and like to move to music it's a very spontaneous thing and and this group of anthropologists were curious about how far like rhythmic movements go back in other animals and so they looked they looked at this question in chimpanzees to see how did chimpanzees respond to the beat and okay. So the, How the did name chimpanzees respond to the called beat? rhythmic swaying induced by sound in chimpanzees by Yuko Hattori and Masaki Tomonaga. Okay. And rhythmic swaying. Rhythmic swaying. So basically, what they did is they had a group of chimpanzees and they played them different rhythms. So they had a couple different. They had this sort of area where the chimpanzees could wander about, and there was a stereo speaker set up in one with a camera, and they had a bunch of cameras around so they could watch the the monkey the monkeys, and they also had like chimpanzees. Little, the chimpanzees, excuse me, they had little uh, markers on their noses and their faces. And so they would start to move them. They could capture this with the rhythm camera so they could actually see whether they were like following the beat. So it was pretty cool. And so then they would play different rhythms and they would just, they didn't play a song. They just played rhythms and they had four rhythms 
um, which they would play for two minutes at a time. The first rhythm was bump, 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 just beats of sets of eight, dump, bump, bump, all, all a C major chord, bump, 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 mm-hmm. bump, over and over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And the second one was, you know, it was sort of like more of a rock and beat. And the second was, and so they would just play this over and then they would watch the chimpanzees and see what they would do. And so what they found is that the male chimpanzees would come to the, the speaker and they would start to, to dance. And they would mm-hmm. mostly go up and down, but sometimes they were going four legs and they're kind of sway side to side. And they would totally like listen to the music and they could change the tempo and then they would change their, their dancing. And it was, and the, meanwhile, the female chimpanzees just stood there and watched the guys, <laughs> which I felt was very similar to my it experience like in high school, <laughs> where the guys were all kind of like bumping around and trying to attract attention and the women just like standing there looking at them. And, that but is it, not it, my experience. Was, it, but, well, anyway, uh, and there was one chimpanzee in particular whose name was Akira, who seemed to be really into it. And so then they they got him to do so a little bit more. So they like singled out Akira to see would Akira dance to different like tempos, fast, you know, super fast, all the way down to super slow. And indeed, Akira would like adjust his his head bobbing and his bouncing based on the speed of the music. Very cool. And they would do sort of two minutes at a time. And then when they would stop, he would, he would stop. And so there was clearly like, he wasn't just bouncing. He was bouncing to the music. And, he, and whenever they turned on the stereo, he would come to the stereo and start to rhythmically sway in front of the stereo. And then he would stop and he would stop. And then he would just keep doing it again. It was really cool. Really cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I thought I think this was a, a really neat paper because it basically made the argument that, that you know, our appreciation for rhythm and music goes way back. Huh. I wonder. Uh, I wonder what other animals and macaws and parrots will uh-huh. also bob to the music. All right, I'm going to go second. And this is an article that I'm guessing you guys probably heard about. So the we're in beginning of the year. So we just had the BMJ Christmas edition come out. But this, I actually, I'm going to argue, was a. I mean, it's it's sort of an amusing. In, in its subject matter, but I think it's actually pretty pretty serious, and it certainly is a serious, well-done paper. The title of the article is Work in 9 to 5, Not the Way to Make an Academic Living, Observational Analysis of Manuscript and Peer Review Submissions Over Time by Adrian Barnett, Inger uh, Muburn, and Sarah Schroeder. And essentially what they wanted to do was to say, you know, we all in academia complain that we're all working too much and we're all working more and we're working on the weekends and nights and holidays and all that sort of stuff. And things are getting worse and worse. I only do that the night before a podcast. Yeah, obviously. And uh, But there's not really been much evidence to, to say one way or another whether or not that's happening. And so they got a hold of an interesting data source to be able to try and tease this out, which is they got a hold of the BMJ and BMJ's opens submissions, which are timestamped. They got a hold of both the journal submissions, but also the review submissions to be able to look at whether or not over time they have been, there have been shifts towards more submissions being done on nights and weekends and holidays in, as well. So I thought it was I thought it was a, a clever way to attack a problem. Of course, it's just one data set, but it, I think it it gives you a, a sense for what's probably going on. So what they did was they looked at transmission dates and times of research manuscripts and peer reviews reports from January first, twenty twelve, when Scholar One submission system was implemented, until April fifth, twenty nineteen. They did actually have a pre-plan analysis plan, which is 
shows you this was not just a quick and dirty thing. They grouped the data by consecutive weeks, so Monday to Monday to Sunday, and their dependent variable was the number of weekend manuscripts or reviews for that particular week with a denominator of the total number of manuscripts for that week. So that means you're talking about a relative change in the probability of weekend submissions, not absolute changes, which obviously could happen as well. And then they ran a logistic regression model to look at what was going on over time. And here's what they found. So they analyzed uh, just about 50,000 submissions and about 70, over 75,000 reviews. Peer reviews were more often submitted on weekends than were manuscripts. The average probability of a manuscript being submitted on the weekend for both journals was uh, 14%. And for peer review, it was 18%. So 14% and 18% of all peer reviews and journal submissions, journal submissions and peer reviews, excuse me, are being submitted on the weekends. However, they found no difference over time in the probability of manuscripts or peer reviews being submitted on weekends and holidays. So really, over the past decade, there's been almost no change in weekend submissions. Now, they also had data, of course, on where these things were being submitted from, so they could do the analysis by country. The lowest mean probabilities for weekend submissions were in India, and the highest were in China. The Scandinavian countries of Norway, Denmark, Finland, and Sweden had the lowest, had some of the lowest probabilities of working on the weekends, so between 10 and 17%. Then they looked at the time of day, so they found that the peak time for submissions was the end of the working day, between 3 and 5. My theory on that is because it takes all day to submit these things. <laughs> China and Japan had the highest probabilities of submitting manuscripts and peer reviews late at night. Manuscripts from China were 86% higher than average during the hours of midnight to just before 1 a.m. And peer reviews were 50% higher during the same time. So, you know, a lot of rich information here, but no suggestion that actually people are getting or, or, or we as academics are more likely to be submitting things on, on weekends than we were 10 years ago. So the Chinese and the Japanese often have a six-day work week. So they did account for this. So they Muslim, many Muslim countries as well, and they did analyze separately. For, they accounted for that. They also got all the holiday information, accounted for that. So yeah, they, they did take care of all of those things. So we're not working harder than they was. Well, that was. Doesn't, I wouldn't draw that conclusion. I would just say this is one piece of evidence that suggests things over the past decade have not gotten worse. Jen, what do you got for us? So I have another story that came from Nautilus. A few weeks ago, you know, Chris and I chose the same amazing and amusing yep. from PNAS. So, so I've had now to, had to diversify had to my, my source. And I really like this little online magazine, Nautilus. So this is an article that was written by Arthur L. Miller. Isn't an L or an I? Is it, uh, Someone might the, need by the person who wrote Arthur Death the Salesman. Arthur I. Miller about this. I was originally drawn to this article because of the career trajectory of the person they, they talk about. So this guy, Ross Goodwin, studied economics. He went on to be a speechwriter for President Obama and then did a lot of freelance writing. That all makes sense, but got really interested in algorithms. And it started when he had a freelance writing job writing business letters, which I find really interesting because in academics, we write a lot of letters. I feel like this might be a little, a dirty little secret for people outside of academia, but, you know, we often write letters for ourselves write letters that are addressed to us, you know, that support us in grant I've, applications. I've heard this can happen. 
you know, and of course you give it to the actual writer, but you have to come up with a draft and it's often very difficult to write the same thing in many different voices. He also had this problem. And so he figured out an algorithm that could generate these form letters. So he, you know, trained it using certain phrases and, but they would all come out sounding different enough in a different, in a different style. It and would actually his job write the letter. It would write, it would write the letter. But he actually found out that this was, you know, and he thought he could turn this into a business, but this was actually already a pretty well-explored area. So he turned to something very different, and that was using these neural network machines to create poetry based on images. So he basically hooked up a... It, his his invention is something called word camera. So you take a picture of something, you show it to this camera, and it identifies what it's seeing in terms of poetry based on the the images that it's identified. And it's all done through this character neural uh, network machine. So CARE-RNN is the acronym that they, they use for this technology. And you can actually go online and find tons of CARE-RNN code that other people have, have used to, for instance, generate what you would be likely to say in a Facebook response or something based on, on your prior responses. Huh. So it's just using, it's trained to predict the next character from some previous sequence of, of characters. So then after doing, using this word camera to, to create some poetry, he then entered into the Sci-Fi London Film Festival using, again, this particular technology, which he had trained using digitized screenplays of sci-fi films from the 80s and 90s, TV shows like Stargate SG-1 and every episode of Star Trek in the X-Files. And then he, this film festival, you're only allowed to produce a five-minute film and there are certain things that you have to include in it. So those were also given to the machine. And it basically spit out this screenplay, which placed in the top 10. (laughs) Wow. I don't know how many (laughs) entries there were. But then he's now gone on to write a book, which you can purchase on Amazon. It was done. It's called One the Road. And basically, it's an American road trip. So he hooked up to his car a surveillance camera on the roof, a GPS unit, a microphone, and then he used the computer's internal clock. And it basically wrote this road trip While he was driving around, while it's he drove a novel across the country. Based on what it's seeing. So it came out in November 2018. It's on Amazon for $24.74. There are no reviews of it. Oh, of we got to do them. So, yeah. Using our own algorithm. Yeah, we need an algorithm to write the reviews. Was, Great idea. You, did you read any of it? Was, was so I mean, how does it's, it read? It's very, so they, they do provide a couple of quotes. So one of the, I'll just read you one. It was seven minutes to 10 in the morning, and it was the only good thing that happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually kind of awesome. I wish I'd written it. That's really that is so cool. It's also That's terrifying. also really scary. I agree. Yeah, that's terrifying. Oof, I should get it to write my letters of recommendation. You should absolutely. <laughs> so, 
That is the end of our program. So if you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at at ProfMattFox or Chris at ID.Gill or Jen at Jennifer R. Ryder. I got it right the first time. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast. Nick Guler for sound editing and crowd control. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download our next episode. 